Hello and welcome to Martian Drive-In Podcast 150. My name is Terry Frost and this time around doing a couple of really interesting recent movies. The first one is the 2019 Chinese science fiction film The Wandering Earth based on the story by Liu Cixin. And then we go to Alita Battle Angel, the Robert Rodriguez directed, James Cameron produced version of the manga and anime starring Rosa Salazar and Christoph Valls. So sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way and we'll get this show on the road and it's good to be back. Martian Driving Podcast happens every two weeks. It's a podcast of science fiction, fantasy and horror appreciation. Sometimes I have guests in, sometimes I'll have a round table. Sometimes it's just random, particularly when there's a Netflix Marvel Cinematic Universe thing coming up. Feedback is the bread and butter of podcasting, so you can put feedback through at the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. You can also email feedback to feedbackpaleo, P-A-L-E-O, at gmail.com you can also support the podcast at patreon.com by going to patreon.com slash paleo cinema for as little as a dollar a week uh just be aware when you're listening to the podcast there may be some naughty words in it so if there are kids around you might want to listen to it later on hey everybody how the fuck are you um yeah so we're back as some of you may know my mother died on the 6th of February, so we had to go up to Sydney for 10 days to take care of that. And, of course, based on that, things have been a bit, little bit wobbly and getting back on my feet as far as creative content's concerned. It's taken a little while, um, but I'm back and I'm going to keep it up and you're still going to get your doses of the good stuff. Um, yeah, so interesting times. Sydney was a really good thing and in a weird way an adventure. I've talked a little bit about this on Paleo Cinema, but I'll just briefly do it now. And again, we're doing the 15-minute rigid rule, so I've got to start talking about the movies at the 15-minute point of the podcast. Um, yeah, it was an adventure. It stretched me um, in a lot of ways. I really kind of had to draw on my internal resources. I had great support from family and Sally, who is also family, of course. And um, I caught up with my nieces, uh, my nephew, Billy, as well. We basically bonded together as a family in a way that we hadn't really done before. And that's the definite upside of this. Um, it's a weird thing when a parent dies of, of something like dementia because you want them to die before they do, in a sense. The quality of life deteriorates enormously. When she died, mum was 37 kilos and there was no quality of life. So I had a chat with my sister Linda and we decided between us that we were both feeling relief more than grief at the time. And that sounds a little harsh to some people, but having lived through what we've lived through over the last few years, it was a kind thing for my mother to die. But having said that, there were some good things in Sydney as well. Uh, we were there for 10 days, so you can't live in misery for 10 days with without going mad in a sense, and, and we didn't go mad. Um, we went to the zoo in Sydney and we did a YouTube video for Sally's channel about that. Um, I saw the movie, one of the movies I'm talking about today, I, I went and saw The Wandering Earth at the event cinemas in George Street in Sydney, which is just on the fringe of Chinatown uh, during Lunar New Year, and that was a, a great fun experience as well. And just being in Chinatown during Lunar New Year was good. Um, we, we ate in some nice cafes. We bonded with family. We had a fantastic wake that lasted seven hours at the Marubra Seals Club, right on one of the best unknown beaches in Sydney. If you go to Sydney, if you get from somewhere else on this clay and granite planet, and you go to Sydney, fuck Bondi Beach, fuck Coogee Beach, head down to Marubra. It's not touristy at all still there's some great cafes it's got a great local feel and the beach is as good as you will get at the other two uh but don't tell too many of your friends because i don't want it to get touristy but um yeah marubra is kind of our home in sydney because the family lives there uh that may change at some stage in the future because my sister and brother-in-law have plans for the kind of in me, not immediate future, but kind of intermediate future, which may mean 
that Sydney won't have any family in it for me, which is going to be a very unusual thing because I was born there, I grew up there. And if Linda leaves, uh, I won't have any family in Sydney. I'll, I'll probably still visit for friends and things, but it'll be a very different experience. Uh, other things too, I've given up eating things with added sugar in them and I don't feel bad for it. Um, people say, oh, I can't do that. It's horrible. I need my sugar and all that kind of stuff. But for me, it wasn't difficult. I still eat some dried fruits and um, I try to steer away from juices too much because a lot of them have got added sugar and I'm not feeling badly. Uh, I did a blood test and they said I was pre-diabetic. So I thought, fuck that. I don't want diabetes. So what I'm going to do is cut sugars out of my diet as much as possible. Though, of course, there are things with added sugar in them. And I kind of, I'm aware of those and I kind of minimise them. But I'm feeling okay. Um, yeah, and I've cut down a lot on things like bread and carbs and things like that. I'm not going to go all kind of vegan crazy on anybody, but I don't feel bad. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things you've got to do. You, you get to a stage in life when... You can't eat like a teenager anymore. It's just part of that fucking horrible entropy we call aging. And it's a good thing. Uh, I can eat healthy foods. There are nice healthy foods now. There are a lot more tasty healthy foods than there were when I was younger, which is always a nice thing. And yeah, so got that. Uh, we've, we've done a couple of other things as well. Sorry to start on the bummer of mum's death, but I'm going up slowly upwards as we progress through the podcast uh sally and i went to the brunswick music festival street market on sunday and she had a stall to sell her crafts she strips down and repaints monster high dolls and and does them herself as an art project they didn't sell uh they're to make them is fairly expensive and the markup on them they run to 80 to 100 dollars because that's a reasonable price for the amount of effort she puts into them and we didn't sell one of them uh uh, but we did sell a whole bunch of her other jewellery and ma- uh, fridge magnets she makes and all sorts of other things like that. Didn't make money. Um, we actually lost a little bit on the whole day. So we had a marquee on Sydney Road. They cl- closed off a kilometre of the street for the street market. And there were fantastic things there. There were all sorts of community groups playing music. There were Welsh Morris dancers there. There were salsa dancers there were um, Indian kind of dancing groups, all sorts of multicultural wonderfulness, a beautiful melting pot of a day. That was the good side. Uh, and the street food was fantastic as well. Downside, it was 35 degrees centigrade all day, and we spent 12 hours in a white marquee tent in 35 degree heat. And even though I was chewing ice out of the esky, it was draining it took us two days to bounce back from that really it was an ordeal in a lot of ways we did talk to a lot of people and Sal got some fantastic feedback from artists about her dolls and and the art of them so there was that kind of upside to it but it was a very draining day we got there at 8 a.m and we didn't get home till about 9 30 p.m um, we're doing currently doing a YouTube video on Sal's channel about that too. But in a sense, it was okay. We, we saw some friends. We talked to a lot of people. There were a lot of kids that loved the dolls, um, even though some of them are kind of confronting and, and kind of horror-related. There was one girl who was, she might have been like eight or nine, but she was autistic. You, you could tell she was somewhere on the spectrum. And she'd look at the dolls really closely and then see little details and her face would light up with delight. And then she'd look at another doll and scrutinise it very carefully and then see something and go, wow, about it. It was a fantastic experience just to kind of watch somebody going through that and finding that joy in something that you know, we live with every day because Sal does the art. But just seeing that reaction was just fantastic. So um, we, we did that as well. Uh, a couple of other things. Let me just bring up my letterbox, and I'll actually talk about something movie-related for a change here. Do, 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 do. Here we go. Almost there. So I'll tell you what I've been watching. Uh, still watching Star Trek Disco, and it's still fun. I've got a theory about Star Trek Disco, and, I'm gonna, and maybe it's a spoiler ultimately, but it's a theory I've got at the moment. And that is that the Red Angel in the second season of Star Trek Disco 
is actually the future Christopher Pike after he goes to Talos 4. That's just my theory. May well be out of line, maybe wrong, but I don't think so. So I'm either going to sound like an idiot when we find out that it isn't him, or I'm going to sound like somebody who's really got their finger on the pulse, if it does turn out to be Christopher Pike. Uh, so what have I been watching apart from that? I did see Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, and it was good. Love the animation, love the different Spider-Mans, like the narrative way that they told the story of each of the characters. A really inventive way. It just works. I uh, like the voice acting as well, like the diversity casting. I like Nicolas Cage playing against um, that stereotype we have of Nicolas Cage being a serious, crazy actor. That kind of worked for me as well. It was uh, a lot of fun, and, and it really did. Um, I should have seen it at the cinema, basically, but I didn't. Check it out if you get the chance. Then I saw a British science fiction film from 1956 that I hadn't seen before, which was kind of unusual because I, I thought I was pretty complete on this, but apparently not. Um, it's a movie called Satellite in the Sky, and it's by the Danzigers, Edward J. and Harry Lee Danziger, who were a production team that worked in the UK as well as the US at the time. They ended up doing things like nudist camp films and all sorts of other things. If you type the Danzigers into Wikipedia, you're going to see a very, very diverse lot of exploitation films. But it's about a bunch of British scientists who create um, a manned spaceship to orbit the Earth, the first one ever. Uh, they've got uh, a really unusual crew. You've got Kieran Moore playing the commander. Kieran Moore was an Irish actor who really did need to lighten up. He had very kind of matinee idol looks, but he had grumpy character actor manners. Uh, really didn't work. Uh, Lois Maxwell turns up playing a reporter as well. Lois Maxwell, of course, playing Moneypenny in the James Bond films in uh, the next decade a lot, who actually smuggles herself aboard the spaceship. This is the kind of 1950s science fiction movie where people could do things like smuggle themselves aboard spaceships. Then you have Donald Wolfett, also known as Sir Donald Wolfett, playing Professor Merity, uh, a scientist who decides that on the first orbiting spaceship around the Earth, they're going to let off an enormous, what they call a tritonium bomb, in space to try to warn the world not to use nuclear weapons. It was not, you know, it's one of those fucking stupid ideas. And, of course, they have some trouble because the um, bomb sticks to the spaceship when they release it and they've got to get it loose before everything goes to hell with it. Um, we know about, from real-life experience, we know about launching nuclear weapons at high altitude. What happens is you get an electromagnetic pulse and nobody can listen to their radio. Uh, but yeah, it's um, it's a nice little artifact of its time. It didn't have a fantastically large budget, nonetheless. At eighty-four minutes, it doesn't wear its um welcome, and the special effects are pretty well okay for nineteen fifty-six. They're much better than I expected them to be, which was a kind of nice thing. I may well uh, look at this one for a future podcast, but yeah, it kind of worked for me in. That kind of cack-handed um, people who don't really understand science doing science fiction movies kind of way. So I watched that. Uh, the only other thing of any note that I've seen, and I'm going to be talking about this this afternoon for ABC Radio Darwin, is I saw Stan and Ollie, the kind of biopic bio of Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy, starring Steve Coogan and John C. Riley. It was made by BBC Films, and it's really good. I really enjoyed it. Um, it was very touching in places. The period mise-en-scene of the whole thing was fantastically well done. Uh, the characters are, are beautifully portrayed, as well as their wives. Um, if you haven't seen Stan and Ollie, definitely see it. It's one of my favourite movies of the year so far. And uh, didn't get a large uh, theatrical release here. It's one of those things that's playing like two, two, maybe three sessions a day in certain cinemas. But I did enjoy it. And uh, I definitely think that when it comes out on disc, I'll pick up a copy because it's the kind of film that I like to rewatch occasionally. And the acting is really good. Uh, I think it's a little late for last year's 
Academy Awards, but I wouldn't be surprised if John C. Riley's name comes up next time around um, for a Best Actor nomination. If not in the Oscars, then maybe in the Golden Globes or one of those other awards. But yeah, it really did work for me, and it, it's a beautifully made film. And um, both Coogan and Riley have a fantastic chemistry as the two lead characters. So check that one out if you get a chance to. And I've just gone over the 15-minute mark, but I was talking about movies for the last part of it, so Richard will forgive me. So first off, I think I'll talk about Alita Battle Angel, and I'll just play the audio from the trailer now. And from there, we can get on with some cyborg action. Does it bother you that I'm not completely human? You are the most human person I have ever met. Didn't I tell you to be home before dark? I just lost track of time. Alita, you have to be responsible. You are someone very special. Hey, kid. Not just a teenage girl. Hey, what's your problem? You can't remember. What do you mean? Doc found you in the scrapyard. So you must be from up there. And I'm just an insignificant girl. That's what they want you to think. I'm not your daughter. I don't know what I am. I do. You have the most advanced weapon ever. That's just a shell. It's not bad or good. That part's up to you. I do not stand by in the presence of evil. She's threatening the natural order of things. Tonight is not a game, it is a hunt. I need you to destroy a girl called Alita. You made the biggest mistake of your life. And what's that? Underestimating who I am. Did you hear the Wilhelm scream in that um, audio there? I didn't notice it when I watched the video, but I just noticed it then. Anyway, Alita Battle Angel, directed by Robert Rodriguez and um, produced by James Cameron. It's 2019 cyberpunk science fiction film. Um, I think James Cameron had this one on his list for a fair while because in 2000 he did a TV series called Dark Angel, which was not entirely dissimilar to the premise of Alita Battle Angel. Now, Alita Battle Angel itself was based on a 1990s Japanese manga called Gunnam, also known as Battle Angel Alita by um, Yukito Koshiro. So there was probably a bit of borrowing before he got the rights. James Cameron has been known to uh, kind of play fast and loose with uh, proprietary rights to various products, which is why Harlan Ellison gets an acknowledgement in the credits for Terminator movies because um, the idea was pinched Harlan Ellison's um, Out of Limits episode of Soldier, which you should rewatch because it holds up pretty bloody well. I saw it a few months ago and it still works, given the technological and um, budgetary limitations of 1960s television, it works well as a piece of science fiction. And... Because James Cameron pinched it, I actually like it more than I like the Terminator movie. But now that I've kicked James Cameron in the slats, it's time to talk about Alita. Uh, it stars Rosa Salazar as Alita, who is a human brain in a cyborg body in a dystopian future a few hundred years from now. 
Uh, there's a final city in the world called Iron City. There's always a final city. Uh, and above it, hovering above the city, is the last kind of wealthy sky city, a place called Zalem, which people aspire to get to because this movie, apart from other things, is a metaphor for the 1% being real pricks, which is really odd because the producer is a billionaire. Anyway, Alita is found on a scrapyard by Dr. Dyson Ito, who is a cybernetician. I think that's right. Anyway, he's somebody that puts together human parts with um, robot parts with human bodies. Uh, played, of course, by the wonderful Christoph Valls. Rosa Salazar, by the way, is really good in this movie because she has those big anime kind of eyes with a little bit veering toward the uncanny valley. But for me, about two minutes in, I was okay with the way her eyes looked. It emphasised her humanity while pointing out that she wasn't entirely human. So it worked on a couple of levels there. It worked for me. Some people may disagree, but too bad. Um, I love the Iron City as well. It's beautifully evoked. It's got a lived-in feel. And a lot, a lot of it, of course, was computer-generated. But it's done in such a way that it really does feel like a science fiction book cover brought to life. The supporting cast is a lot better than you'd expect, but a lot of the people who worked on this worked on it a couple of years ago because it's been in production since 2016 and finished uh, its shooting schedule early 2017. So the rest of it was putting the effects together and getting everything just right, then finding a release date. So you, um, you've got Mahershala Ali, who Oscar winner, playing Vector, who's an entrepreneur who rigs the big game that's on in Iron City, something called Motorball, which is kind of like Rollerball crossed with Mad Max. So you've got, um, in various parts, you've got Alita being Jonathan from um, Rollerball, played by James Cunn, of course, uh, in this kind of stitched-in game, which performs the same function in Iron City as, say, soccer does for Brazilian favelas. It's one of those kind of social pressure release things where you can go and cheer and boo and do all that kind of thing so you don't actually challenge the status quo. So anyway, Dr. Ido finds a body for a leader because the parts of her he finds are basically the head and the torso using um, a body that he created himself. It's part of his backstory that he did that, but I'm not going to spoil that for you. And then while off on an adventure, when she kind of asserts her independence from Dr. Ito, Alita finds a body for herself, which is an immensely powerful cybernetic weapon. It's a berserker body from a war several hundred years before, in which Alita took part. She's kind of been in a suspended animation in a junkyard for hundreds of years. Which, of course, gives us one of the cliches that is in this movie, and there are a few, which is the amnesiac hero trope, which then lets people explain the world to the audience. And seeing this very harsh and brutal city through Alita's kind of naive and innocent eyes really does let us see that it's a nasty Darwinian place and that things have been set up that way by the residents of the city above Zalem. One of the things the movie does get right is that it's got that kind of lived knowledge of the developing world. Robert Rodriguez lived, was born and lived in San Antonio, Texas, right on the border with Mexico and had family across the border. And so he knows what it is to be in a place that's developing and where people have to sometimes compromise their moral compass in order to survive. And we get a lot of that in this movie, and we get ways of doing it and a kind of redemption arc for Alita's boyfriend, Hugo, played quite blandly and placid by an actor called Kian Johnson, who doesn't have a Wikipedia page, so I can't find out too much about him. We also get Jennifer Connelly playing Dr. Churen, who's Dr. Ito's ex-wife and is a cyborg engineer working for Vector. And we get a few moments and a few little scenes of Jennifer Connelly with Mahershala Ali playing Vector and the deals they made for 
her to work for him because he runs motorball and he wants the best cybernetic improvements for his people playing the motorball game. Uh, we get Ed Screen playing Zapan, a cyborg bounty hunter. And here's another bit of casting that I really liked. Jackie Earl Haley plays Gruwishka, a giant cyborg who works for Nova, the head of uh, the city of Salem. Now, the interesting thing about that is Jackie Earl Haley's like five foot three or five foot four. And in this movie, because of the way they do the mocap, he's playing somebody that makes Dwayne Johnson look like Pee Wee Herman. So there's a kind of irony and a bit of fun there for the knowing viewer. Uh, we also get a couple of little cameos that kind of work. Rick Yoon turns up uh, as Master uh, Clive Lee, a hunter-warrior. We get Jeff Fay playing a hunter-warrior war- hunter called McTeague, who has a pack of cybernetic and robot dogs with him, and he uh, bounty hunts using his pack of dogs. And I kind of <laughs> like that. There's some really nice little in-world details in this film that kind of make it a little more interesting than it would have been otherwise. There are some really nice set pieces of action in this one. There's one set in a bar for Hunter Warriors where Alita proves that she's worthy to be in there. There's the big um, motorball game. There are just a number of different kind of set pieces that work. And even though the movie has a kind of slightly unreal feel because there is so much computer-generated stuff in there. While it was happening, it didn't worry me that that was there. My head went into a weird space. It was a kind of combination of this is a live-action movie and this is an anime, and that kind of worked. I think they slid between the cracks very deftly in the way this movie was made, and maybe because it was grounded by people like Jennifer Connelly and Christoph Waltz and Rosa Salazar giving us characters that feel lived in much, much more than a lot of movies of this type would do in other circumstances. The movie runs just over two hours, and I don't think it outstays its welcome in doing that. We only get to see the big baddie Nova in one scene right near the end, and he's played by Edward Norton, an actor who, um, based on what I've heard of him, is problematic in a number of sections of which it was part, but uh, it's setting up for a sequel as well, which is kind of cool. Oh, yeah, Casper Van Dien from um, Starship Troopers turns up as well, but I didn't notice him in the film. I only saw him when I was looking at the credit list later. So they do have a couple of nods to earlier generations of big action films in there. So that's kind of nice. I like that stuff. I like it too when they give us some really interesting side characters who are in there almost as slightly bigger than extras, so cameo kind of roles but they make them really intriguing and they kind of work for me. That kind of world-building detail that the movie has showed the creativity involved in making this film. And even though it wasn't a particularly success, it may have just gone past break-even, which is usually twice the budget. But um, there was an announcement last month that they are working on a sequel to Alita Battle Angel. Not sure what they're going to call it. Maybe Alita Battle Angel 2 or something imaginative like that. But I'll see it. Um, I, I like the world building. I like the world that's created by, of course, the manga and the anime before the movie and by the movie itself. And I like a lot of the actors in it. I think that it's kind of a little bit underrated in some of the reviews given. I don't think it's a groundbreaking movie apart from the use of visual effects. But I liked it. It was a good entertaining piece of cinema. It did exactly what it was intended to do, to give a kind of interesting and visceral adventure. I don't think the love story works particularly well because one of the actors is, let's say, less less skilled than Rosa Salazar is. But again, that's something that happens in these kind of films. There was a really interesting cameo there too. Jai Courtney, the Australian actor, turns up in about two minutes of the film and apparently there was a much larger role there which may well of course be expanded in a sequel but it was really odd to see a fairly well known actor turn up in what was almost an extra part but um, it'd be interesting to find out exactly how many rewrites and how much kind of 
editing finesse they had to show to make the movie come together. It's um, a little hard to tell. There's not too much information out there at the moment about it, but I will be intrigued to find out. So anyway, it's time to move on to a movie, I think, which ultimately in the long run will be a lot more influential on science fiction cinema. And that is the Chinese film, The Wandering Earth, based on a story by Liu Cixin, and I liked it. Shao 为了我们的孩子我们已经没有什么不能失去的这是我在军事法庭的你疯了吗怎么可能等于同归于尽 我原来以为家在身后，现在才知道家在前面。千万要顶住！无论最终结果将人类历史倒向何处，我们决定选择希望。Yes, I know most of the trailer was in Chinese, but I played it anyway, and I actually played it with a purpose. This is a really interesting film, and I think it's a breakthrough film as far as science fiction cinema is concerned. Allowing for Captain Marvel superseding it, up to this point, it's the highest grossing film worldwide of 2019 so far. It's China's second highest grossing film of all time, It's the second highest grossing non-English film of all time and one of the top 20 highest grossing science fiction films of all time and few people I know have seen it. That's kind of groundbreaking. It's because it is a Chinese film and because it wasn't made widely available in Australia, though it is getting some screenings as word of mouth gets out there. But The Wandering Earth is a fantastic science fiction film in a lot of ways. Made on a budget of $50 million US, which doesn't sound like much, but the money goes a lot further in China than it does in, say, America, for instance. It's a science fiction adventure film and survival film on a scale that in cinema is unprecedented. Uh, People have compared it to Armageddon, but I think Armageddon was a nationalistic piece of wankerage. I saw it, oddly enough, I remember exactly the day I saw it. I saw Armageddon, you're going to love this. On the 4th of July, 1998, in Costa Mesa, California. As I recall, the cinema was about two-thirds empty. And of course, um, Armageddon was a nationalistic piece of work, um, very much in, in the style of late 1990s action films. The science in it was pretty shit. Um, It did have some decent actors in it, but the dialogue and everything else that Michael Bay put into it was risible, really. It hasn't aged well, let's just put it that way. So I'll leave Armageddon aside instead about The Wandering Earth. Now, it's directed by Frank Wu, based, as I said, on a story by Liu Cixin, who is the preeminent 
Chinese science fiction writer at the moment as far as Western audiences are concerned. In 2015, he got the Hugo Award for The Three-Body Problem. And in 2017, he got a Locus Award for Death's End and has been nominated for a Nebula Award as well, which is a fairly big achievement for non-English language science fiction. But this adaptation really works. Now, I'll give you the circumstances under which I saw it, which were, for me, slightly unusual. I saw it in the George Street Cinemas in Sydney, as I mentioned before. Uh, during Lunar New Year, there were crazy amounts of people around there. There were um, lots of parades and um, festivities and everything like that going on. It was really kind of an intense time in that part of Sydney because of the um, large Chinese population. And it was in the middle, it was in between my mother dying and the funeral. So I kind of needed a day to myself to go to the cinema. So I took the bus into town from where we were staying and I immersed myself in, in the, what the goings on there. It was really warm and humid and I needed a day to myself to kind of clear my head. I wanted to see the movie. I'd heard good things about it from lots of friends, including a friend of the podcast, Grant. And I really wanted to check this out because I wasn't sure at that stage how long it would be in cinemas and whether I'd be able to see it when I got back to Melbourne. So there was a kind of time sensitivity there. And so my head was in a weird space because because of the other circumstances that aren't going on around me. But I went and had a meal. I, I looked around uh, Chinatown. I took some video, which I will be putting up at some stage on my YouTube channel in some form or other. And then I went to see the movie at um, the event cinemas in George Street with, with a predominantly Chinese audience. There were a few other guaylo there, but mostly most of the people in the audience were Chinese. Now, the movie had been distributed by uh, Tangren Film Group who are a film company that does distribution of Chinese films for the Chinese diaspora. So they release them in places where there are large Chinese immigrant populations. And so I'd heard some good things about Tangra Film Group. I'd seen one of their previous movies on Netflix, which was Animal World with Michael Douglas, which is about which is an adventure film about rock, paper, scissors, in case you um, weren't sure what it was. Really interesting, visual, stylish film. So I went and I saw The Wandering Earth there. It was one of the biggest cinemas, too, in Sydney. Um, there's a, there were a lot of seats, all of which were packed. The, the cinema was booked out. I got a seat on the aisles right up the back towards one side because that's all I could get booked online because this movie had such a buzz among the Chinese-Australian population. And I remember once upon a time, I used to know um, a science fiction writer who's still around, Damien Broderick, and he had had filing cabinets full of information. This was before the internet was big. This was before you could just go to Wikipedia and find anything you liked. And one of the drawers on his filing cabinet, in fact, the top drawer on the three-drawer filing cabinet in his office just had a little label on it that said mind-blowing concepts and the wandering earth is a mind-blowing concept the backstory and this is in the first five minutes of the film this bit i'm going to tell you now the sun is slowly expanding to become a red giant the earth's going to get swallowed up and before then it's going to be cooked like a meatball on a barbecue And so the nations of the earth forget all their bullshit, band together and decide what they're going to do is move the planet earth to Alpha Centauri. 4.3 light years away. It's going to take 2,500 years to do. And to do it, they put 10,000 enormous fusion engines on one side of the planet, stop the earth's rotation, whip it past the sun, whip it past Jupiter and headed off into interstellar space to Alpha Centauri. That's the plan, and they carry it out. Half the population of the Earth dies because of the stopping the rotation and the earthquakes and other things that are part of that. And in the meantime, the enormous engines are being built. They're all about 15 kilometres wide, and all the cities of the Earth become underground cities 
because things are going to get cold and they're going to have to find a way to survive for the next 2,500 years. All this happens in the first 10 minutes of the film. Special effects are on point. They did get Weta Workshop to help them with some of the um, physical effects, things like the um, pressure suits that are necessary for part of the film. But everything looks beautiful. There are a lot of shots in this that are breathtakingly lovely and mind-boggling. So visually, the movie is fantastic. The story kind of then zooms in and centers around a family. Um, Liu Pequong, a Chinese astronaut, and by the way, I'm mispronouncing words here fantastically badly, is a Chinese astronaut, and he promises his son, um, Liu Qi, that he will return from a space mission because he's been tasked to go to a large space station which is ahead of Earth and will kind of identify and remove any objects in front of the Earth that are going to cause trouble as Earth accelerates to a fraction of the speed of light and heads towards Alpha Centauri. So it's kind of like a lighthouse and a, a warning system ahead of it. Big rotating space station, and he's going to spend part of the time in suspended animation as they rotate the crews through the space station. His son, Liu Qi, um, grows up at 17 years later. His father has been in suspended animation for part of that time. And he lives in an underground city in China. Now, he lives with his grandfather, um, Han Jiang, who's a truck driver. And in the meantime, the grandfather has adopted um, a girl as the earth was flooded and, and all the disasters were happening. They pick her up. She's an orphan. And her name is Han Dudu. So they've got a family of three people. The father's actually up in the space station, won't be back for 17 years or so. And the grandfather's a truck driver transporting materials and everything that's necessary for the cities to function between cities in these enormous trucks, which are about the size of mining trucks that they use in Western Australia to mine iron, or they're big, hard fuckers. They've got pressurised cabins, they've got heating in them, because as Earth has travelled further away from the sun, it's started to become really cold. It hasn't quite got to the stage yet where the atmosphere turns to ice and just solidifies, but it's extremely cold. And the underground cities are living partly on geothermal power to keep them warm, as well as the fusion technology, which also enables these enormous rockets to um, cannibalise part of the Earth's mass and turn it into energy in order to propel the Earth to Alpha Centauri. The son, Liu Qi, pinches his grandfather's pass because he wants to go out on the surface. He's never been since the Earth started moving and wants to take Han Dudu out there so they can both see the surface of the Earth, which is not a totally unreasonable request. They um, basically get some pirated pressure suits and go out there and steal their grandfather's truck. Just as they're going on a bit of a joyride there and their grandfather finds out, the Earth engines, the enormous engines, the 10,000 engines that are propelling the Earth towards a swing past Jupiter, start failing. Don't quite know why, but everything needs a reboot. It's one of those things where the computer goes bung and you need to do a reboot. So they've got to try to find a way to reboot the entire planet before the planet crashes into Jupiter in not very long at all. A matter of a couple of days. Or a few days, anyway. The time scales are a little bit wishy-washy on that. They get seconded in the truck to carry a piece of equipment that'll help restart some of the failing engines. And they've got to get by land on the, the frozen glacier-covered surface of the Earth um, past Shanghai and to get down to Sulawesi in Indonesia to help restart the engines. They join up with a military team, which is doing part of the work, and things just keep getting worse. More and more problems come up. More and more things go wrong. And there's a wonderful sense of escalation in the threat. They try this. They've got a solution that might work. Something happens, that fails. 
They're going through enormous glacier chasms where the surface city of Shanghai used to be, and the glaciers start collapsing upon them. There's just so many bits of this movie where really mind-blowingly dangerous things happen to our protagonists. Meanwhile, the father is on the space station trying to find a solution to this problem of you know, Earth crashing into Jupiter, and he has to deal with an AI that has contrary commands and has a plan B to save the human race, which is not what uh, Liu Pequong wants for his family. Of course, his family's back on Earth. He doesn't want them to die with as a plan B happens. And so he's fighting an AI on an enormous rotating space station. His children are on the frozen surface that he has tried to get stuff done and to restart the engines along with his father. And these kids aren't very experienced at anything. They're kind of good at certain things, but they're still young. They're still inexperienced. And they've also joined up with an elite military force who are trying to transport um, enormous restarting dongle to restart one of the engines to help the Earth, along with a whole bunch of other teams that are doing the same thing all across the planet. There are French teams. There are teams from all over the Earth that you hear mostly via the radio links. But you get the idea that there are a lot of people doing this stuff all across the world to basically restart the spaceship that the planet Earth has become. And it's not too much of a spoiler to say that they restart the engines, but it's not enough to stop the Earth from colliding with Jupiter. So they've got to come up at the last minute with a Plan C. And Plan C is the most mind-boggling part of this movie. It's not that the fact they're moving the Earth to Alpha Centauri. It's not the fact that they've got to restart and restart enormous rocket motors that are pushing the Earth toward Jupiter where it's going to break up into tiny pieces and be totally destroyed. Plan C is a bold concept, I'll give you that. This is the kind of science fiction that you only see in hard science fiction novels. You don't often see it in cinema, and that's kind of a, a novelty for me. Of course, Plan C works and everything's okay. The movie would be a, a kind of tragedy if that wasn't the case, but I'm not going to tell you how it's done or what it is because that's part of the fun of this film. The thing that really makes it totally interesting is it comes from a totally different cultural paradigm than the one we're used to in science fiction cinema. Chinese cinema and Chinese culture is woven through this film. Certain important parts happen during Lunar New Year celebrations, where it's all about the sense of renewal and a family and of looking toward the future. And it also comes from a culture which is taking the long view of things. It's not about immediate gratification. It's not about immediate results. This project is going to take two and a quarter millennia, two and a half millennia, to ultimately complete and they've got to keep human civilization going until then it's an extremely long viewpoint this is not a film that could have been made by americans or australians for that matter or the english or europeans it's comes from a culture that has a deep knowledge of its own history and that's a very technologically literate civilization it assumes that people know a little bit about science even though it does explain it it assumes a certain level of scientific literacy as well. And it also comes from a paradigm, and there are a lot of things wrong with the Chinese government. We all know that. We know that the Chinese government at various levels is corrupt. We know it's a totalitarian society, and they're trying to keep well over a billion people functioning in a very, very complex world with limited amounts of resources. So it's a really interesting place. But like American films, it doesn't talk to the worst of Chinese culture, it talks to the best of it, in the same way that Armageddon talks to the mythology that Americans have about themselves. Just the assumption that in a crisis, the nations of the earth are going to drop their kind of tribal bullshit and pull together to save the planet is utopian in its essence. But in the context of this film, it's believable. Um, I'm not sure what the short-term political things would be if that were actually to happen and they were trying to get the whole planet to agree to fix a problem, I'd suspect that a large chunk of the Earth would 
in be in denial about it. And of course, this movie is a parable for climate change as well. Uh, the Earth's getting hotter, not for the because of anthropogenic climate change in the in the context of this movie, but because the sun's getting bigger. Nonetheless, the idea of the film that there has to be a global and extremely large response to the changes in our natural environment is one that we probably wouldn't see from a western culture i mean there's none of that nihilism that you see in some science fiction movies where yes we're bad people and we deserve whatever is coming to us there's none of that this is about survival this is about continuity and culture this is about saving civilization and human society and the human race itself. And the things that may be questioned in a Western narrative are not questioned at all in this one. Yes, you've got to do this. Yes, we've got to try everything we can to do to fix the problems that circumstance has given us. Yes, family is important and we will do anything for our family. All of those kind of human issues are somewhat different in this movie from the things that we see in a disaster movie or a kind of extreme climate change movie the day after tomorrow any of those things even though like those movies this one narrows it down to a small group of characters who are quite important to the solution to the problem but nonetheless a small group of characters it very much has a different feel and comes from a totally different cultural viewpoint and I found that really refreshing. It really worked for me. And I suspect, and this is going to be controversial a little bit, but I don't care. I think that we're going to see a lot more Chinese genre films being released to Western cinemas. Of course, you've got the Chinese diaspora in Western countries, which gives a certain core seed audience for this kind of film and for films of this nature but you also have an immense curiosity about other cultures by a lot of people and i think that's only going to grow in the future as the internal internationalization that the internet's got built into it starts really becoming interesting as translation technologies become um, more available we're going to be able to do a lot more with communicating with other cultures um, there are still the limitations of things like Facebook and YouTube not being available in mainland China. But around the edges in other Asian countries, there is that growing bridge between different cultures, which the internet is facilitating and which fairly cheap and easy travel is making a lot more possible, particularly here in Australia where the distances involved are somewhat less than they are from the United States or Canada or in Europe. I really look forward to that change. I do like watching American blockbuster tentpole films that are all starting to come out now, Captain Marvel and then Avengers Endgame and all the other must-see films that we're going to experience before 2020 and the TV series and the streaming series and the, all the other popular culture in which all of us, to greater or lesser extents, are immersed. I mean, this movie probably won't play well to an audience that likes watching Married at First Sight, the football, and all of those kind of local content um, kinds of entertainment, which seem to be dishearteningly popular on Twitter, at least in my, on my Twitter feed. People are talking about really bad uh, commercial TV reality shows are way too much, including some very intelligent people I know, and I find that kind of inexplicable, but you've got to kind of accept that at a certain stage. But I see more of this happening. Netflix has picked up The Wandering Earth, so people will be able to see it on Netflix within a few months, and I think then it's going to be shit hot. Um, social media is going to explode with it more than it has previously, I'm, of course, being who I am and, and what my things I like are, I've already had a lot of um, that first wave, wow, this is a good film, you should see this kind of reaction to The Wandering Earth. But when it hits Netflix, that's when this shit's going to get incredibly viral. And part of that's going to be word of mouth. Uh, the Umbrella Academy, the superhero um, series with Ellen Page in it, has been like that on Netflix. As people binge it, you get a wave after wave 
of enthusiasm for the particular property. And I think that that's definitely going to happen with the Wandering Earth. We're going to see a bit of um, a splashback as well. I think that when it hits Netflix and if, as I suspect, it becomes really, really big on Netflix, we are going to see certain racist groups having a backlash against it and um, op-edding their opinions about it across social media. But one of the things that this movie emphasises as one of its subtexts is the universality of human existence and how we're all, we all want the best for our families. We all want to survive. We all want a future. And one of the canny things that this movie does is bridges that cultural gap by giving us a family story and giving us really cool adventure that's thrilling and interesting and visually stunning even though not all the special effects are quite up to, say, a Marvel Cinematic Universe film, though they are close, I think that this movie is going to be a pivot point for science fiction cinema in so many ways. And I think that that opening up science fiction cinema so that there's room in the zeitgeist for other cultures' viewpoints and other language viewpoints and other ways of seeing the world uh, is only a good thing. I think that if we can agree about how cool a movie is, then we can start agreeing about other things. I think that America knew this a century ago when Charlie Chaplin and Laurel and Hardy movies were bridging gaps across multiple language groups, that... If you can find a common point of interest, you can start building other bridges with it. And I think that this movie will do that. I don't necessarily think it's a kind of propaganda arm of the Chinese regime, though that's a possibility. And, of course, there are a number of um, people in the Chinese diaspora working reluctantly in a lot of cases for the Chinese regime, I think that, um, and there is that gap to fill as the American empire slowly disintegrates. Uh, there's that power vacuum in the world, which China is more than happy to fill. I think that we're going to see more of a shift away from Anglophone culture, away from um, American culture in particular, towards maybe a, an evening out of those things in the movie space. And I like the universality of things. I like the fact that, I'm going to be a bit braggy here, the fact that we're going to Japan for 13 days next month is going to open me up to other cultural viewpoints, I hope. I think it would be a total fucking waste of time and money if it didn't. But I really, I like the future. I'm optimistic about the future because I think that as information gets out, and there's that old paradigm from about 20 years ago that information wants to be free. I think that's now coming to play. We're getting the secrets that are stopping us from moving forward. They're being revealed, and we're starting to find ways to do something about them. And I'm optimistic about that, particularly with the idealism of young people really having a voice and the fact that they're digital natives and instinctively know how to use the information technologies of our planet I think that there's going to be, there's a possibility that we can kind of slide between dystopias and build something that's going to be worthwhile and enduring. There's that possibility. I think there are forces in the world that are encouraging selfishness for their own means and for their own enrichment in a lot of ways. But I don't think it's as successful as they think it is. And I really like the internationalization of science fiction cinema, that this movie is at the pointy tip of. I think we're going to have a really interesting decade or so, at least, of movies and TV series and other cultural artifacts of entertainment that are going to be nothing like those we've seen previously. 
So on that note of Pollyanna optimism and utopianism, I'm going to leave the podcast there. Um, Thank you for listening, and thank you for bearing with me while I dealt with personal issues and haven't put out a podcast for about a month. I'm going to keep up the usual fortnightly schedule on Martian Drive-In and Paleo Cinema Podcast, alternating the two. And the YouTube channel, of course, is going to be giving more movie-related goodness. Um, You should also check out Sally's YouTube channel. I will put a link in the show notes for that because she's doing some interesting things and we really had fun enduring the Brunswick Music Festival last weekend. But in the meantime, take care of yourselves. Watch good movies, watch bad movies, keep watching the skies and I'll be back very soon. In the meantime, of course, here are the credits to honour the Patreon supporters who have seen the podcast through the last month of not particularly easy life for me. Um, And again, thank you to everybody who sent me messages about this. It meant immense amounts to me to have support. And not only from my family, but from my extended family on the internet. You guys rock. So here are the credits. I'll put a bit of music after this, the credits, and I'll see you next time. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Driving Podcast, done in the style of movie credits to honour the people who support this podcast. Thank you to Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, the technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, the prop master, Morris, the musical director, Jan, the dialect coach, Arm and our key grip, Matt, the rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, our wardrobe mistress, Tansy, our foley artist, Alyssa, our location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, the donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, Uh, Steve Sullivan, our director of monster effects, Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Richard H, our set photographer, Mark D, our extra, and David L, our extra. Kerry H, who is the accountant. And our newest supporter, Gary J, who is a CG effects technician. So thank you very much to all of the supporters of the podcast. I really appreciate you dipping into your purses and helping out with the podcast.
pickle, bony, banana, pineapple, phony, feet, fine, mo, moni, tony. Pretty good. Let's do Billy. Billy, Billy, boogily, banana, pineapple, Billy, feet, fine, mo, milly. Billy. Very good. Let's do Marsha. Marsha, Marsha, bobasha, banana, pineapple, basha, feet, fine, mo, asha. Marsha. A little trick with Nick. Nick, Nick, bo, big, banana, pineapple, big, 